an incredible job in responding to that. So first I want to thank you and just applaud how generous you are. I'm just uh, each month just amazed with your generosity and I thank God for it. For the month of April, it's canned soup, kind of leaning toward the chicken noodle, chicken rice soup. So if you could write that down, we'll be sending it out by email. If you want to go ahead and start shopping the sales, uh, texted with Shane McDaniel this morning from Max Fresh Market. They're going to run a special uh, for about, I think it'll be two for a dollar for the canned chicken and rice, chicken and noodle soup from their store brand. You can shop around. Uh, but we're looking kind of for the smaller cans. Remember, we're sending these home with the children. Uh, they're carrying them home in backpacks for the weekend. They're leaning toward the smaller cans. If you can get those, that would be awesome. And I want to thank you. Also, I want to just thank you for your generosity in giving. You know, last year, toward the end of the year, we just came to you and just laid out that this year we wanted to make two additions to our staff that were necessary. One was uh, filling that vacant position of an administrator and, and minister of education, which God has brought us, Richard Lee and his family. They'll be kicking off on Easter Sunday with us on the 16th. I'm really excited about that and also filling the position of maintenance supervisor. So I asked if you would just commit this year to give extra. And many of you jumped in immediately. And I just want to tell you that as a result... Our giving has exceeded our weekly budget need. Now, that is fantastic. So I want to thank God for that. Um, I was able to sit down with Anthony Bunting, the chairman of our finance committee, and we had a nice meeting on Friday morning to just kind of review the whole first quarter and just look at the trend of your generosity. And I want to thank God. I, I have thanked God like a dozen times specifically thanking Him for the goodness and the generosity. Uh, a lot of folks come to me and they say, well, the challenge we have in our congregation is like 20% of the people do the work and 80% don't, or 20% of the people do the giving and 80% don't. Listen, I think it's the other way here. I think we got 80% of the people doing the work. Maybe 20% aren't. we got 80% of the people giving. It's awesome. And I thank God for that. And I rejoice in it. We had a volunteer banquet the other night and... Just fantastic to look across the number of folks who labor behind the scenes every day and every week. And brothers and sisters, we're blessed. We have such an incredibly loving and encouraging church family. And over the last few weeks, I've been laying out for you sort of a vision, sort of a plan, sort of an idea of how we can approach every single day of our life in Christ in a way that is simple and it's effective and it's biblical. And I began that by talking to you about three things we ought always be about. The first we talked about was that we ought to be about knowing God. And we'll review that in just a minute on some of the slides. And then we went from there and talked about those who know God in a personal, saving, intimate relationship, grow in the likeness of God. And we talked about how each day, I start my day with the desire, I God, I want to know You. I'm going to dig in Your Word. I'm going to come in prayer. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to focus on You because I want to know You in order that I might grow in Your likeness. As Your child, I want to be like You. As a disciple of Jesus, I want to be like my Master. And then we talked about that doesn't stop there. It goes into the call to show the nature of God in Christ to our community through the proclamation of the gospel in word and in life. And so today we're kind of leading into the second part of that as we've spent some time on what it means to know God and the God who makes himself known. And then last week we talked about the world that needs to know God and how Part of that world, speaking in general categories, is hung up in legalism and religion and morality, trying to justify themselves and finding their gratification in the approval of others. And then we talked about the world in the pagan sense, where folks are trying to gratify themselves 
and want their justification through the approval of others. We talked about how broken the world is that we're ministering to and the need for the gospel to permeate both of those mindsets. Well, today I want to talk to you about the church who grows in the likeness of God. And so this is, uh, let's back up just a little bit, Robin. Keep going back, keep going back. Two more. There you go. Thank you. If it weren't for the folks behind the scenes, I don't know what I would do. I'd be able to do this. Uh, when we talk about knowing God, we talked about how God makes himself known. And that he makes himself known first through the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament is his handiwork. We also talked about how God gives those made in his image a conscience so that there might be internally an awareness of his existence and what he is like, that there is a holy and a justness and a righteousness to him that convicts us deep inside. Then we talked about how God also makes himself known and reveals himself through the Bible. The perfect, wonderful, flawless revelation of God written and handed down to us, preserved so that we might hold it in our hand and read it. And what a treasure we have in owning a Bible. Then we talked about the perfect and full revelation of God through Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty and the humility and the goal of God in Christ And then how God left the church as the continuing revelation of himself to take the message of who he is and what he is like to the world. And he did all of that so that we might know him five particular ways. We might know him accurately. God wants us to recognize what he's really like, not what we imagine that he's like, not what people say that he's like, but what he's really like. So he's made himself very clear through his word and through Christ Crystal clear. Also, he wants us to know him personally in a personal relationship, not a him there, me here, but a God in us personal relationship where we relate to him in conversation and we spend time with him. Also, he wants us to know him as we shared savingly. Uh, to redeem us, to rescue us, to forgive us, to uh, birth us into new life by the work of His Holy Spirit, to regenerate us by His divine power. Then we learned that that relationship is an intimate relationship. It's described in the Bible in the most intimate of human relationships. It's described as a husband-wife relationship. It's described as a father-son, parent child relationship. It's described as a sibling, brother to sister, brother to brother relationship. And so in the most intimate of terms, God describes his relationship with us. And then all of that because he wants us to know him eternally, defining eternal life as knowing him. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So if we dive into this relationship and we know Him in these ways and through these means, something happens. We're changed. And we're grown in His likeness. So that's where we pick up today in our study in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you'll join me there in your Bible. And we'll spend time there looking through what Peter says about growing in the likeness of God and what he says about a particular kind of growth in the likeness of God. So join me, 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, in this particular section of Peter. Peter's rolling out of something into something. He's rolling out of a conversation about the security and certainty of our salvation. He talks about God's election and him keeping us. He talks about 
the wonder and the joy of celebrating our salvation. In fact, listen to the way he describes the celebration in chapter 1. Verse 8. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So, Peter's come in and he said, I I want you guys to really rest in the knowledge of God's calling you and choosing you. Of your response of faith and believing the gospel. And I want that to fill you with joy inexpressible. Why? Because he's going to talk about suffering. That those folks who are the children of God, who know Him accurately and personally and savingly and intimately and eternally, they're going to live in a world that's hostile to God. And they're going to suffer. And so he talks about assurance. He talks about celebration of that assurance and joy because he's talking about living in a culture, in a world, where following Christ openly as we should and following Christ proclaiming the gospel to others as we should is going to bring pushback. It's going to bring suffering. It's going to bring um, persecution. It's going to bring hardship. And so he's helping the church get their footing in the certainty of their salvation, the assurance of it, the celebration of their salvation, their joy of it, because in that salvation there's going to be suffering. There's going to be a world that works back against our belief, our profession of faith, our confession, our evangelism. So now he's going to talk about a particular way we live that out. So he gets to that in verse 13. Let's go to number one. Peter teaches us that preparation is necessary in order to grow in the likeness of God. Now think about this. God has called a people out for his own possession. He's purchased them. With the blood, the life, the death, the resurrection of His Son. He has them still on earth for a purpose. And that is to carry out gospel proclamation. To go house to house, person to person, town to town, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and to tell everybody about Him, but also in process to show everybody what He's like. So that there's not a disconnect between what we're preaching and how we're living. Remember the disconnect that Jesus talked about with the Pharisees and the scribes? He was sitting with his disciples one day and he said, the disciples were listening and they were watching and he says, the Pharisees have set themselves with the scribes in the seat of Moses. So whatever they read to you from Moses, do. But do not be like them, for they say things and they do not do them. So what happened in the time of Jesus is that there had become a disconnect between the religion that claimed to represent God and the life lived in the house and in the community, in the neighborhood, in the business venture, in the shopping centers. The life that was being lived in those places was totally disconnected from what was being said in the religious gatherings. And so when Peter gets to this section of his writing, he's saying there has to be a connection between what you say and what you do. The word that he's going to focus on is the word holiness. And so now he's going to lay some groundwork for the preparation for the life of holiness. The first thing he says is gird up. 
Now, unfortunately, a lot of the translations kind of wash this out. Even uh, the version of the New American Standard that Steve read a moment ago. I've got the old 1977 version, and some of you got a good old King James. The word here is a direct pull from an Old Testament illustration. And the direct pull is the word gird up. We don't say that anymore. And my mom wore a girdle. And those of you who have ever watched Red Skelton have seen his girdle illustration. It's crazy. If you haven't seen that, go YouTube it. It's pretty good. My mom wore a girdle and she wrestled to get that thing on. I remember as a kid. Listen, the idea of girding yourself was an Old Testament concept of readiness. Because back in the day, they wore clothes that kind of draped. And they wore those because of the harsh environments, the sand, the heat, the kind of um, elements that they lived around. And so they wore clothes that kind of draped. And when they would get ready to do some work, like a fisherman working, like a farmer working, like someone who had to run and do something quickly, they would pull, they would gather their robes up, and then they would kind of tie their robes into a great big knot so that their flowing robes came kind of like shorts. And the idea to gird up was to make yourself ready for something. And when when Peter gives this illustration, everybody knew what he was talking about because they did it all the time. Women and men both did it. When they got ready to do particular things, they knew they had to gather up those robes, those flowing things, and tie them off so that they would not be encumbered by them. Now, here's what's happening. Peter's talking about the tendency for the mind to be lazy and to simply go wherever it wants to go, to be undisciplined, to follow its whims, its fantasies, its lusts, its desires. And that mind has to be girded. In other words, the mind has to be tied up so that it doesn't just go loosely into anything it wants to go into. That means when you're on media, you have to be very careful what you let your mind go into. You can't let it run free. You can't let your mind run unbridled and expect to grow in holiness. So Peter says in preparation for holiness, you've got to rein in. You've got to tie up. You've got to pull in your mind so that it is disciplined in its thought process. That it is focused on what you need to accomplish. And so... Gird up. Then he says something that goes with it. Sober up. Now, it's very unlikely that he's referring specifically to alcohol here, though that would be in the idea. He's not talking primarily about that. He's talking about mental sobriety. Why would he say that? Because the Bible is frank about the intoxicating nature of sin. The intoxicating nature of material things. The intoxicating nature of sensual things. The intoxicating nature of attractive things. Peter says, you know what? You can fall into thinking that will make you drunk with what it's offering. And you'll become so drunk in your mind that you will begin to operate as a moral drunkard. Where now you are making moral decisions as if your whole self is intoxicated. And so what Peter's doing here is he's saying, you need to gird up your mind, get it, rein it in. And understand, the reason it likes to run free is it loves intoxicating things. It loves fantasy, 
lust. It loves all of those dark things. That's why when you're standing in line at the cash register in almost any market in America, the magazines that are there are not intended to draw your mind to good things. They're intended to draw your mind toward intoxicating things. The way that people are dressed on the covers of the magazine, the the headlines of the stories that are given, are all wanting to prey on your tendency, my tendency, to be intoxicated with bad things. And it draws us in. Same thing happens in music, in movies, in all kinds of media. You ever notice how easy it is to click on one thing and then to start following a different path all of a sudden? And then you're somewhere you don't need to be. And you're going, how did I get here? How did I go this far? It's the intoxicating nature of sin. And so Peter is going, you need to gird up, you need to sober up. And then he says, you need to get your hopes up. Now, what do I mean by that? Usually, when we talk about getting our hopes up, we use it in the negative. We've got a child or a friend or a spouse or somebody that's dear to us, and they've kind of got their mind fixated on something that you're doubting is going to happen. And so you'll say something like, man, I sure hope they don't get their hopes up about that, because I don't think it's going to happen. I sure hope they don't get their hopes up about going there or getting this or this person doing this, because I don't think it's happening. Usually when we talk about getting our hopes up, we talk about it in the negative and say, I don't want them to get their hopes up. Listen, I want you to get your hopes up. I really do. But listen to what Peter says about those hopes. Look in verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Okay? Gird them up. Then he says, be sober. Alright? That means a sobriety of your mental process. You're not inebriated. You're not drunk and you're not intoxicated with the sinful things of this world that prey upon the lusts of your flesh. You're sober. You're thinking rightly. And then he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is beautiful. What Peter is telling us is get our hopes up. Right now. Begin contemplating the glory of Jesus' arrival. Begin contemplating the glory of His appearance. You have never seen anything that even begins to compare to the beauty of Jesus. When He is revealed, your eyes are going to behold something so glorious that had you not been regenerated, it would kill you. It is going to be beyond comprehension. And it is going to be an outpouring of a grace beyond our imagination. Where in that moment for every believer, we are going to with uplifted faces behold Him who was slain on our behalf. And we are going to kneel in worship and proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're going to be pretty fired up about that. That's coming! And what the Apostle Peter is saying is, man, you need, to, you need to fix your minds on that. You need to set your hope on that. Because that is your only hope. Your hope is not tied to anything on this earth. Nothing on this earth can sustain you, save you, redeem you, forgive you, keep you alive. Only Christ Himself and His work on our behalf with living for us and dying for us and being raised from the dead. Only those things provide us this hope. And so Peter's saying, there needs to be some preparation for a life of holiness. It needs to be built on girding up our minds and disciplining them. Sobering up our hearts and not letting ourselves become intoxicated with the things of this world. And then getting our hopes up. So that what we focus on is his arrival. Listen, my mom was always happy to see Sherry and I, and then as time went, Sherry and I and Laney, and then as time went, Sherry and I and Laney and Laurel. She always was fixing her hopes on us arriving. 
And so she would talk to me the day before. When do you think you'll come in? And I said, well, Mom, based on just normal travel time, I think we'll get there maybe around 4 or 5, something along in there. And then with the advent of cell phones, we'd be able to call along the way and give her a little bit of our ETA and kind of update it. And so Mom had hopes of our arrival. And so Mom would go to work. What would Mom do? Well, first she'd clean the house spotless. She would just clean everything. And then she would go to work in the kitchen. And she would start preparing some very specific things that we like. One of those things is country fried steak and tomato gravy. Okay? She'd go to work on preparing that. Now, I can ask, and I've not rehearsed this, but I can ask Sherry and the girls, where would mom be when we would get there? Sherry said she'd be standing at the door with her nose on the window waiting on us. I'm telling you the truth. We'd come down her little street, and we'd, and she wouldn't walk up to the door. She'd be standing at the door. Okay, you know what? She had fixed her hope on our arrival. She had cleaned and she had prepared with the knowledge that we were coming. Let me ask you something. Have you done that in preparation for Jesus' arrival? Do you live in such a way that you've cleaned your house and prepared everything for His arrival? In other words, is He going to take you by surprise? If He were to arrive now, would you somehow... It's a sign. (laughs) That'll turn off in a second. It's the baptistry making sure that there's enough water in it. If Jesus came today, would He find you with the kind of preparedness that Peter's talking about? Now watch what happens from here. This next part just kind of flows into three particular things that happen as a result if this preparation is legitimate. So let's go into that. Look at number two. Peter reveals the relationship in which we grow in the likeness of God. Why is he talking about girding up, sobering up, and getting our hopes up? Because God has brought us into a particular relationship. Look at the relationship, verse 14, as obedient children. The God of the universe has chosen to call you His daughter, His son. To as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. You have been granted the absolute wonderful privilege through your faith in Jesus Christ to be called the son or the daughter of the living God. Because of that relationship, two things Peter makes note of. First is obedience. A good relationship between parent and child is a relationship where the child obeys his or her parent. Listen to what he says there in verse 14. As obedient children. Then he mentions something else. And that's imitation. Every healthy relationship of parent and child where the parent sets forth a right example. The child who is in the healthy relationship with them wants to imitate the parent. In the culture that Peter was speaking to, almost always the sons and daughters followed the trades of their parents. If the mom was a great seamstress, the daughters would learn that. If the dad was a great carpenter, the sons would learn that. It was just a part of how life was in healthy family relationships. That the parent was obeyed and the parent was imitated. What is being said here is that if you've been brought into the knowledge of God, into a relationship where you call God Father, then as His child to express the relationship rightly, there's obedience and there's imitation. But Peter's going to focus on one particular kind of imitation. Let's go to number three. Peter explains that sanctification, which is the pursuit of holiness, is the essential matter in growing in the likeness of God. This is very important. God's holiness is the otherness of His nature and character. That in its fundamental and essential goodness permeates every other aspect of His nature. 
It is that fundamental otherness of God's character, of His goodness and light, that permeates His mercy, His wrath, His grace, His justice, His love, His hatred. It is His holiness that permeates every other aspect of His being. Peter focuses on this because that's what he's asking of us. That the fundamental thing about God that we need to imitate and by obedience come into conformity with is His holiness. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But let's go to letter A. Sanctification fights against conformity. Look in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Remember I talked a minute ago about how lusts are that mental uncontrolledness and that unsoberness of heart that lets us become conformed to the desires of our flesh. Here's what happens. When I am conforming to my lusts, my lusts run the show. They run my life. They run my thoughts. My desires run my plans. All of those things fall under the sway of my temporal desires. And what the Apostle Peter says is, you have to no longer conform to those things. You have to fight against that conformity. This is why the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, there's a war going on within you. Your flesh is battling the Spirit of God in you right now, just to stay focused. Right now, just to be attentive. And then every moment of every day, there's this war going on between the lusts of your flesh, the desires of your flesh, the fallenness of your flesh, and the godliness of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And the Bible says that these two are at odds, at war, at enmity with each other, and that there's a war going on in us. And so, sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, the likeness of God, fights against conformity to our former lusts. The only other time this specific word is used in the New Testament is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We know that one. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. So this is a place that takes place, a battle that takes place in the, in the mind. And so where's the battle? It's in a mind that is girded up and a mind that is sobered up and a mind that has fixed my hopes, laid my hopes upon Jesus Christ. So I've gotten my hopes up on His return. And so sanctification fights against conformity. It also labors to remove ignorance. Look at what he says in the last part of verse 14. It says, your former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. He's talking about before you knew God. Before you entered into a, an accurate, personal, saving, intimate, eternal knowledge of God. Before that, lusts ran your life. Your desires ran your life. That was the king. That was the thing that you obeyed and the thing that you imitated was what your lust wanted. Sanctification labors to remove ignorance. What does that mean? It means Bible. And it means community. Every single day I need to live my life in the Word of God and in the community of God. The community of God helps me not misinterpret the Word of God. You see, God's given us each other. And sometimes we have to come to each other and say, I kind of noticed what you've been doing lately. And if we try to justify it through some knuckle-headed view of the Scripture, our brothers and sisters say, wait a minute, that's really not what that says. They correct us. I remember one time preaching particularly about something that happened in the life of Jesus and a friend of mine came to me afterwards and he said, I don't think you have a right view of the humanity of Jesus. Because from what you said today, here's what I would take away. And he was right. Not only did I have to go back and reread and rethink, I had to go back to the congregation that I was leading at the time and say, I got this wrong. 
It's the Bible and it's the community together that allow us, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, to maintain a genuine holiness among the people of God. Sanctification labors to remove ignorance, not only in ourselves, but in each other. We sometimes have to inform each other of the truth of God so that we pursue sanctification, holiness together. Finally, sanctification yearns to be holy, just like God is holy. If I want to imitate and obey Him, He commands me to be holy, and He is holy, so I'm going to go after that. Look at what it says in verse 15, at the beginning. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Be holy yourselves. See, this is important because this is the thing I take everywhere. Holiness. I can take holiness into my house. I can take holiness into private time when I'm just alone. I can take holiness into my neighbor's house. I can take holiness to work. I can take holiness into the marketplace. Holiness is mobile. Not all of the gifts that God has given me can I use every place I go. My primary gift that God has given to me is to teach I can't use that everywhere I go, but I can be holy everywhere I am. And so can you. You can be holy in all your conversations, holy in all of your behaviors, your actions, your motives, your interactions. The holiness of God can permeate permeate you in the same way it permeates Him, affecting every other aspect of your character. Peter sums it up, though, by giving us um, three kinds of motivation. For holiness. Let's jump into those and we'll close with them. Peter also reveals at least three kinds of motivation for sanctification. The pursuit of holiness. First, a genuine fear of God, especially as both judge and father. Look at what he says in verse 17. If you address as father, okay? Now the if there is important. Some people address God as Father and He is not their daddy. They have not been born of the Spirit. They've not been born of God. They've not been born again. They just think everybody's automatically a child of God. That's just not true. The Bible divides all of humankind into two kinds of parentage. 1 John chapter 3 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He's going to talk about behavior. If you're addressing God as Father and you are not pursuing holiness, He may not be your dad. You may address Him as Father in prayer, but He may be relating back to you the way that we hear about the end of some people's lives in chapter 7 of Matthew where Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you. You may be calling God Father in your prayer, but you may not be His child. And so, Peter says, there has to be a holy fear of God in you as both Father and Judge. Listen to what he says. He says, And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Somehow in the preaching of the gospel in the 20th century, coming into the 21st century, there was a proclamation that somehow said, if you are a believer, you will never be judged by God. If someone told you that, they were wrong. Every one of us are going to stand before God. The references to us standing before God and giving an account are multiple. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in ourselves To be rendered according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Part of our motivation for holiness is that we're going to be judged. You say, Pastor Bart, are you talking about salvation by works? Absolutely not. Your justification before God is solely, completely, totally, exclusively by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
His life on earth, perfect. His death for us, a sacrifice for the imperfect. Perfect in the place of imperfect. His resurrection, God's announcement that due payment has been received and restored to life. And therefore, all of those things entail us trusting Him and being justified. But the Bible says this. Faith without works is... Say it. Dead. In other words, works... Say it this way. By faith, we receive justification. But by works... There is verification. Verification that we are the children of God. Now quickly go to 1 John chapter 3 and we'll come right back to where we were. 1 John chapter 3. It's a very pointed statement that John makes in 1 John. Chapter 3 verse 10. I love the sound of turning pages it sounds so much better than scrolling screens. <laughs> by this, verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. They're verified. What? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You can't get it any more clear that works are verification of a faith that leads to justification. They flow out of. So back to First Peter. Two final things that Peter says to us. So there has to be, alive in every one of us, a fear of God. Because we are going to stand before Him. It's not a cowering fear. It's the same fear that I had when I was taking a bad grade home to my dad. I feared my dad when I was taking a bad grade home. Did I think he was not going to let me be his son anymore? No, I didn't think that. But I knew that he loved me enough that I was not going to simply walk in with bad grades and him think lightly of it. And so we're going to stand before God. We need to fear him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right after that passage about standing before God, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And so a genuine fear of God especially is both judge and father. So he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. So he says, you need to live a life that fears God. In fact, uh, the hallmark of not knowing God is not fearing God. It says in Romans chapter 3, as it concludes that passage about unbelief and unbelievers and that all are under sin, he says, apart from this regeneration and this work of God in us by the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So that's the state we're in before we're saved. B, an understanding of the incomparable value of the redemptive work of Jesus. (laughs) Peter says, guys and gals... Part of what makes you pursue holiness is looking at how expensive it was to buy that holiness for you. You know this from the throwaway culture we live in today. We get a lot of stuff that's made really quickly and we dispose of fairly quickly. Sometimes it's single-use things. Sometimes it's just a couple of uses and it's gone. Sometimes we're disappointed because we thought it was going to last, but it wasn't. It was kind of made in an inferior way. But we know that because we paid 99 cents for it. It's like, surprise! But when we pay more for something, we seem to expect more of it, don't we? Don't we do that? Isn't that kind of normal? What was paid for you? Listen to Peter. He says this, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. (laughs) Listen to this. He says it. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If God went to such great lengths to purchase you and make you holy... Should you not go to great lengths to be holy? 
That's what he's telling us. That part of the pursuit of holiness is founded upon fear of God and standing before him. But it's also founded upon faith in what God did for us and the lavish expense that God went to. If God had traded the universe for your soul, it would have been a cheap deal for him because he can make them in a few days. No. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him and apart from Him. Nothing has been created or come into being which has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Word is Jesus. And He died for us. We were not purchased with makeable things, creatable things. We were purchased with the Creator. He gave Himself. And so part of our quest for holiness has to be founded upon the great expense that God has given to buy us out of our bondage, out of our sin, out of our stupidity, and to make us like Him. And finally... A desire to be influential as a representative, as an ambassador of God among those made in His image. The last section in chapter 2, verse 11 that Steve read, Jump there, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lust. He's referring back to something He's already told us. Which wage war against the soul. That battle, that's why our minds need to be girded up and sobered up and our hopes need to be set up upon Him. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. He's talking about that day that your hope is set on. By your evangelism to them, they can set their hope on that day too. Listen carefully. Because of how you behave and what you taught, another man, woman, boy or girl, can come to know Jesus and as a result be setting their hope on the same day you're setting your hope on. In other words, we need to desire to be influential and understand that holiness is the chief aspect of influence. Holiness is portable. We can carry it into our marriage We can carry it into our politics. We can carry it into civic life. We can carry it into work life. We can carry it in the marketplace. We can carry it into private places. We can carry holiness anywhere we go. God has made holiness utterly, completely portable because you're carrying the nature of God in you. And that's how He's sending you in me. Would you bow with me? I want to begin by questioning if you know God. As your father. I don't mean in the general sense of him as creator. But the personal sense of a relationship where you through faith. John chapter 1. As many as received him. To them gave he the right to become the children of God. To those that believe on his name. Are you the child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? This means repentance from sin. And obedience to the gospel. The good news that Jesus lived for you perfectly, died for you as your substitute, was raised from the dead as God's seal of approval that the finished work was accepted. And then He reigns now at the right hand of God for all of eternity. Are you in a relationship that is accurate, personal, saving, intimate, and eternal? with the living God. I want to invite you to that relationship now. I want to invite you to know God as Father. To be forgiven of your sins and to have eternal life and to be being made holy all the rest of your days and being God's representative on this earth to those who don't know Him. Would you receive Him today? You can pray with me now to ask Him. Pray like this. God, I've heard about you today. 
how you want to be a father. I know that you're not my dad. I know by my deeds. I know my, by my attitudes. I know. But I heard hope today that you would make me your child if I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. I believe that He lived for me. God in the flesh. He died for me. My substitute. My Savior. And He was raised from the dead to live for me. I trust Jesus. Would you save me and make me your child? Oh, the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've called upon Him in faith, He will and has saved you. Others of you, you're here today and you confess faith in Christ and you know that God is your Father, but your holiness has gotten sidetracked by some other things. You've been watching some media that keeps saturating you with dark stuff and just pervades you. Rather than holiness, it's like a darkness. You've been engaged in some activities of thought or of body that you know are not holy. And you're a believer and you know that you're not being effective in your home, in your family, in your relationships, and in your job, and in in school. You know that you're just not carrying the holiness of God to others. You're not representing Him. And you want to get that right. Would you do that today? Would you say, God, today, I'm, 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 I'm girding up. I'm tying up these loose ends in my mind. I'm sobering up. I'm getting off of these addictive things, my sensualities and all this stuff that pulls my mind in. And I am getting my hopes up on the return of Jesus. And I'm going to clean my house like company's coming. I'm going to clean the house of my soul. Would you do that today, believer? That this church could flow out into this community today after this service, pouring holiness out the doors, and it just leaking into every neighborhood, every nook and cranny of Pineville, Alexandria, Ball, DeVille, 28 West Corridor. We would just leak out into all of this community, up into Grant. And holiness would pervade. Would you do that? As God leads you, would you stand? Would you respond to Him?